Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the queer micronation, the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. They are the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We just have one content warning for this episode. This episode will include discussions of modern queerphobia, including the 2017 Australian Same-Sex Marriage Postal Survey. If that's something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out the rest of our content. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our patrons who voted on the topic for this episode, and I'd also like to thank the people at the Australian Queer Archives who gave us access to the research material that forms the bulk of this episode. I just wanted to make a little note about sources and how we talk about them. This is a very recent episode. It starts in 2003 and it ends in 2017. I literally remember the whole span <laughs> of this episode. <laughs> yeah, we're really pushing the boundary of our history here. But what I wanted to say is that I'm going to discuss some of the internal disputes between the people involved in the gay and lesbian kingdom. Very little record of these disputes remains in the public. I've gleaned what information I do have, mostly from online forums and Wikipedia edit history. It's been a journey. <laughs> but in talking about these, I don't want to dig up personal fights from 20 years ago between people who, with the exception of their involvement in the gay and lesbian kingdom, aren't in the public eye. So I'm going to avoid mentioning specific names a lot of the time when talking about these debates amongst the group and instead focus on the issues which they were about. So our story is set off the coast of Australia, but it begins in 2003 in Canada, when several Canadian provinces reworded their laws to state that marriage was between two persons rather than a man and a woman. Australia, broadly speaking, only recognised heterosexual marriage at this time. The situation's a bit more legally complicated than that, but that will do for our purposes. So in 2004, two same-gender couples in Australia went to the family court to see if they could have their Canadian marriages recognised in Australia. The hearing was scheduled for August 2004. On the 27th of May, a few months before the hearing was scheduled, the Liberal government, that confusingly being our more right-wing political party, under Prime Minister John Howard... (laughs) (laughs) So John Howard introduced the Marriage Amendment Bill, which explicitly stated that, to quote... Marriage means the union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others voluntarily entered into for life. So prior to this, marriage had been conventionally understood to be between a man and a woman in Australia, but that wasn't explicitly written in the law. Yeah, that fully sounds like Johnny Boy's outlawing divorce. (laughs) It kind of does, which he's not doing. Okay. The law continues, certain unions are not marriages. A union solemnized in a foreign country between A, a man and another man, or B, a woman and another woman, must not be recognized as a marriage in Australia. I hate him so much. I have like the emotional response to John Howard that chimpanzees have to seeing our garden hose with two eyes drawn on it. (laughs) Generationally ingrained. (laughs) Yeah, that's how deeply I hate him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, John Howard... Not to immediately go off the rails too early in this podcast, but John Howard was really my political awakening in, like, 2004. Yeah, Uh, well, John Howard was Prime Minister from 96 to 2007, so that was really the time when all three of us were just discovering that politics existed in any way. Yeah, like, my very earliest political memory is the 96 election mm, a oh, bad start oh, wow. <laughs> i remember being very small and hearing adults talk about how they hated the government and me being like oh that seems like it's going to be a problem for me one day <laughs> and then when i was like 10 years old in 2004 i was like yeah 
there it is. <laughs> I have gone on to hate the liberals ever since. I guess I will state that I was not really aware of gay marriage in 2004. My hatred for him sprung from the fact that he is also extremely bad to First Nations people in this country. My hatred of him at that age sprung from the fact that he created this whole horrible fear-mongering narrative to allow us to wildly mistreat asylum seekers. Yeah, Yeah, which we're still not recovered from. Anyway, back on track. Do you want to hate Howard a little more? Always. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) So just in case it wasn't clear why John Howard had decided to change the law, he said himself in a later interview, what we didn't want to happen in 2004 was for the courts to start adjudicating on the definition of marriage, because that was a real threat in 2004. Because some people who had contracted same-sex marriages in another country had the capacity to bring their issues before courts in Australia. Just let them be married, Howard. You don't have to marry a man if you don't want to. That's it. You know what? No, he does. (laughs) All right, all right. You specifically have to marry Tony Abbott. (laughs) Oh, that would be the best reality show of all time. (laughs) It would be awful and I would watch every episode. (laughs) The second episode is based out of Tony Abbott's propensity to just continuously serve raw onions for dinner. we mention how there was a moment that was a huge media storm in Australia and that still hasn't fully died down where then Prime Minister Tony Abbott just fully bit into a raw onion. <laughs> yeah, he was like visiting an onion farm and like wanted to show off how good he thought their produce was, so he just not peeled to be clear. Anyway. Anyway. John Howard. <laughs> so- John Howard, 15 solid minutes of heckling. <laughs> <laughs> so John Howard's Marriage Amendment Act, which changed his definition of marriage to be explicitly between a man and a woman, passed the Australian Parliament on the 13th of August 2004. I recognise that we're holding this against John Howard, but why did the entire Parliament pass this? Come on, guys. Like, you know, there were definitely Labour politicians who were against it, but yeah. it passed pretty easily. Cool. So in June 2004, around the same time John Howard was working on getting this bill through Parliament, a group of queer Australians set off from the mainland in a boat to found their own country in the Coral Sea, free from Australia's homophobic laws, called the Gay and Lesbian Kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands. So let's get straight away into some of the issues in unravelling this history and give you an insight into my Wikipedia edit history-based research struggles. (laughs) Good. This is what researching modern history is like, guys. So it's often written in online articles about the kingdom that the idea was first had by a Matthew Briggs at Brisbane Pride in 2003. Brisbane, if you don't know, being the capital of Queensland, a state in northeast Australia. Despite the mention of Matthew Briggs online, I found no mention of him in any of the archival content we looked at regarding the kingdom when researching this episode, or actually anywhere else online except in repetitions of this one statement that he had the idea for the kingdom at 2003 Pride. Eventually, I started to realise that this claim about Matthew seemed to appear for the first time on Wikipedia in August 2019, with no citation, which is quite late in the scheme of things when you consider that this kingdom was founded in 2004. Yes. So I went back through Wikipedia's edit history to try and find some clues about who Matthew was, and discovered that Matthew replaced a different claimed instigator in the Wikipedia article, named Jason Barazio. Again, a name that I've never come across anywhere else in connection to the kingdom. The two names were switched back and forth over a few weeks of Wikipedia editing in 2019, sometimes with a bit of additional information. And when I say additional information, let me give you a representative example. Okay. (laughs) To quote a September 2019 version of the Wikipedia article, The initiative for the founding of a gay kingdom was taken during and by Matthew Briggs of the Brisbane Gay and Lesbian Pride Festival in 2003. 
During and by Matthew Briggs. <laughs> it doesn't make very good grammatical sense because prior to the addition of Matthew Briggs, it said, was taken during and by the Brisbane Gay and Lesbian Pride Festival or something like that. Oh, implying okay. that the people involved in the festival yeah. made this decision during the festival. Yeah, okay. And then they added Matthew Briggs so they didn't really reword the rest of the sentence. To continue the quote... However, during the summer of 2011, Jason Barazio of Melbourne led a bloody revolution against Matthew Briggs. <laughs> this revolution was fought publicly in a local Coles car park, <laughs> being an Australian supermarket. Dame Edna was spotted during this battle and was said to have laid the final blow on Matthew, thus ending his homosexual crusade. So, <laughs> for a bit of context... For our non-Australian listeners, Dame Edna is a comedic caricature of like a glamorous 1950s housewife played by the comedian Barry Humphreys. She's very camp and that's why she's here in this bit of queer history. Yep. So <laughs> the quote continues. But oh, okay. No, go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Teamed with Jason, Dame Edna took the throne from the corpse of Matthew and placed it on Jason's head. I think it's meant to say took the crown. <laughs> Here comes Damon with the steel chair. It was at this time, Jason exclaimed he was now king of the Coral Island homosexual state. Dame applauded him, and the people rejoiced for the liberty they so hardly fought for during the reign of the tyrant Matthew. Do they think that Dame is Damon's first name? It is implied in the way they talk about her, yes. All right. Jason is the ultimate and forever undisputed king of the gays. Well, I didn't vote for him. <laughs> was chosen in trial by combat in the uh, Coles car park. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's better than the, like, legal monarch did. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> oh, my God. I would love it if Charles had to duke it out in a Coles car park. All right. So, like, what, <laughs> I guess, is the most succinct way I can put my many questions on this topic? Yeah. yeah. So, I spent a long time deep in the weeds of, you know, Advanced Google search and Wikipedia edit history try to find any piece of information about Matthew Briggs, Jason Baratio, and why they were here on the Gay and Lesbian Kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands Wikipedia article. Did you find their LinkedIn profiles? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't really find much solid evidence of who they were in connection with either Brisbane Pride or the Gay and Lesbian Kingdom of the Coral Sea. And this paragraph, which is obviously, you know, comedic, <laughs> makes me suspect that Matthew and Jason were just two people editing each other into the Wikipedia page for a laugh and that they didn't have anything to do with the kingdom itself. Having spent a lot of time browsing the Wikipedia edit history of the kingdom, they wouldn't be the first or the last people to do this. Okay. And it was just unfortunate that, like, the article that went viral was taken from Wikipedia while Matthew Briggs was in there. Well, Matthew Briggs is still on the Wikipedia page. So this whole ridiculous Coles car park section was deleted in 2019. It wasn't up for very long. But that one sentence, the idea was had by Matthew Briggs at Brisbane Pride, remained. And because that sentence by itself sounds perfectly reasonable, nobody's questioned it for the intervening three years. And it's copied into online articles not that infrequently. It's so crazy that someone obviously came along and decided to delete this, but did not think anything of the mention of Matthew Briggs. They were like, I'll just delete the weird looking parts. I mean, what I suspect happened to, you know, just paint a picture, is that Jason and Matthew were going back and forth editing the Wikipedia article. Jason came in and wrote this thing. Nah, I defeated Matthew in the Coles car park and here's how I'm in charge now. Matthew came back and was like, no, you didn't, and deleted that paragraph and just left the idea was had by Matthew. 
And then they just like got bored of their wiki war and went home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess and so. So like what we're alleging here is that these are two completely unrelated, somewhat homophobic men. I mean, as far as I could find on the internet, I could find no connection between Matthew Briggs, Jason Baratio, and Brisbane Pride or the Gay and Lesbian Kingdom. So what you've suggested just there, is that what you can see has happened via edit history of who deleted what? Or is that like you trying to kind of suggest a possible sequence of events? That's me trying to suggest a possible sequence of events. So within the edit history, because none of the people editing this particular section were logged in to Wikipedia, right, okay. we can't actually tell who they were. Okay. So I would suggest that probably if you're making jokes about you and your friend on a Wikipedia page about gay people that you think it's funny to link your friend to gay people. Yeah. And therefore it's probably homophobic. And, you know, by all means, Matthew, Jason, get in touch. If you're not <laughs> homophobic and there's something else going on, that's fine. Like, let us know. But, you know, I think that's quite likely. Yeah. In that case, I don't think Jason Barazio added all this stuff about Jason Barazio. I think Matthew added that. And then, you know, maybe like Jason deleted the parts about him and then just left the parts about Matthew for a joke. That probably makes sense, actually. Yeah, or the other way around to what I said. A third party was like, this is obviously a joke, but yeah, just wasn't discerning enough to get that Matthew Briggs was also a joke. That makes sense. Either way, stop using Wikipedia as a source. Or if you use Wikipedia as a source, check your citations. This sentence has never been cited throughout its presence on Wikipedia. I've now added a citation needed tag, so we'll Good. keep an eye on how that pans out. Yeah. But see, the thing is, though, is what's going to happen is that people are going to go find all these news articles that mm. mention Matthew Briggs, and they're going to cite those. That's true. And yeah. that brings me to my other point, which is that also stop trusting the news. I realize that makes me sound like a crazy person. Second there. <laughs> no, no, yeah. But like articles on museum websites, articles yeah. in mainstream newspapers, you know, gay newspapers and things like that, just copy information from Wikipedia all the time. Yeah. There was a long time there where people were very distrustful of Wikipedia. And I feel Wikipedia has been somewhat rehabilitated in recent yeah. years. Yeah. And that's bad. I like, feel like obviously Wikipedia has its place. It's a wonderful website that should continue to exist. I hope it has funding for, you know, the rest of time, but it should not be relied on as a source at all ever. I'm reminded a little bit of the like wildly circular situation we had with Josephine Baker. <laughs> yeah. My ongoing struggle to find out whether Josephine Baker ever slept with Frida Kahlo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which was like a three-way circle of news articles citing each other via Wikipedia yeah. or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that was something that I sort of thought was quite interesting in researching this episode is because the Gay and Lesbian Kingdom of the Coral Sea is so recent and nobody's written a book about it, all the information is online and online information is quite ephemeral. Mm. So you're often just like jumping between online articles, trying to dig up, you know, which of these articles was first and who wrote it and where did they get their information? Mm. And there's not really anything concrete to go back to. Yeah. I was thinking it's interesting that we're doing this episode that is so recent. I wasn't concerned or anything to the extent that I was like, Alice, what are you doing? I thought this was a good topic, <laughs> but I was kind of like, huh, that's, you know, is, like, as you said at the beginning, kind of barely history. But this actually does raise really interesting questions about, like, how a history that is still currently unfolding is being recorded and yeah. maintained or kept available. You know, this is similar to conversations we have about how I'm like, now everything's on streaming services. No media is really, you know, physically available, physically, kind of. like, keepable, which I guess, you know, it's wonderful that Aqua are doing what they're doing, but also... 
Yeah, and I think from the perspective of an archive, like the Australian Queer Archives has a great collection about the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea, and they're doing very good work, but they're not archiving online content because people really don't know how to do that. Yeah, and also, like, archives have, I guess, a different role than something like Wikipedia does. Like, archives are Mm. not that accessible as a way of gaining quick overviews of information Mm, for the general public. It's just not really their role. Yeah. And there isn't really a good, like, way of doing that for things like this. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. the best thing we have is like Wikipedia and this happens on Wikipedia. Yeah. To give an example of like some of the issues that I came across, later in the episode in 2017, the kingdom was dissolved because Australia legalized same-sex marriage. And that was announced in a Facebook post. And I knew this Facebook post existed. I'd read about this Facebook post. People mentioned that this Facebook post existed, but the gay and lesbian kingdom Facebook group no longer exists. So mm-hmm. I was like, where do I get that post? So I went into the Wayback Machine, which is a wonderful website, which mm-hmm. archives other websites. And I put in the URL, which I even had, of this post. And it was like, yep, we archived that page. And I was like, that's great. And I clicked on that. And that took me to the archived version of Facebook's login page from 2017. Oh, no. (laughs) Which I couldn't log into. Yeah. Because I don't know how computers work exactly, but you know. It's not a real Facebook login. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There you mean. But you still have to somehow get past it to get into Facebook. And I finally was lucky enough to find this Facebook post, screen capped, on a Tumblr post that was then in a BuzzFeed article called, like, Top 100 Things That Happened in Australia in 2017. But oh, like, man, yeah. Yeah, this stuff isn't just readily around. And it was yeah. a screen cap, so you can't even just Google it to find it because, you know, you need to provide alt text if you're going to make your screen caps Googleable. So That is pretty grim. <laughs> Shout out to that random Tumblr user who screen caps that post. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also worth remembering, though, that screen caps are also, like, easily falsifiable. Yeah, like, in this instance, I have no reason to believe that the screen cap was falsified, but, you know, you do have to remember that as well. Oof. Everyone, just keep a diary, for the love of God. Just keep a diary, give it to Aqua when you're late in life. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Preferably, you know, keep a diary that you type up, print out, and also share a digital copy with them so it's readily searchable. Yeah. Just for us. Just for us three, personally. (laughs) So, back to that Wikipedia article. Mm-hmm. I just love how we're like, fairly far into this and we haven't really talked about any real history of this kingdom yet. <laughs> no. On a less comedic note, the 2003 date of, you know, the idea was had at Brisbane Pride in 2003 also raises some questions that would refute the general claim that the kingdom was founded in direct protest to Howard's changes to the Marriage Act since that occurred in 2004. It's quite possible that some Brisbane queers had the idea of their own kingdom in 2003, inspired by many other queerphobic Howard government policies, and were spurred into acting on it by the changes to the Marriage Act in 2004. So the idea of it being first thought of in 2003 isn't necessarily wrong, but it is a slight discrepancy that is worth pointing out, I think, because it's often misrepresented as in 2003, because of the changes to the Marriage Act, they did this. Which obviously can't have happened because the Marriage Act thing hadn't come up yet. Yeah. And does that date lead back just to wikipedia or is that date of 2003 something that you found in say documents in the archive i can't remember to be honest okay yeah it's a good point i don't trust anything that's fair (laughs) that's sure you know we're unclear all of this culminated in the decision to found the gay and lesbian kingdom of the coral sea islands on cato island for a bit of geographical background cato island is about 650 meters by 300 meters of flat sand and scrub in the middle of a coral lagoon in the coral sea it's the highest point in the coral sea islands territory which is a collection of similar tiny islands off australia's northeastern coast 
All up, it's about 7 square kilometres or 3 square miles of land, spread across about 700,000 square kilometres or 300,000 square miles of sea. As far as I've been able to gather, the islands are and have always been uninhabited. I mean, they sound like not particularly livable, if you know what I mean. Yeah, like there's no fresh water. Not only uninhabited, but uninhabitable. (laughs) Yeah, like they sound like something that might be worth visiting for, I don't know, eggs. Yeah, they were used for guano in like the late 1800s-ish, but that's kind of the only reason you would be there. There's also weather stations there, which helps predict cyclones, because that's a very cyclone-prone area, but you can't really live there. So Cato Island is accessible by boat or seaplane from the eastern coast of Queensland, which is about 350 kilometres or 220 miles away. The kingdom's founders, as I said, went by boat. The trip seems to have been largely led by two men, Dale Parker Anderson and David Smith. Their boat, which they named the Gay Flower, belonged to David's straight brother, Jason. Gay Flower is quite funny. (laughs) It's quite funny. (laughs) Yeah, Gay Flower is pretty good. Jason's crew, they were a fishing crew, this was their fishing boat, apparently enjoyed the task of sailing a bunch of queers to the middle of nowhere. Jason wrote a card to Dale afterwards. Dale had obviously paid him for the trip. And the card opens, thanks for the cash. You didn't have to. I was happy to take you mad buggers out to Cato Reef. Nice. (laughs) To be clear for a non-Australian audience, buggers is not a homophobic slur in this context. No. no. (laughs) It's just a friendly insult unrelated to sexuality. Incidentally, Jason's card to Dale ends with a postscript, have you and Dave got it on together? I know my brother. (laughs) I wanted to include that just because, as a bit of a side note, Dale had an ongoing crush on David. Aww. In his diary from that June, Dale writes, I think David is sexy. Hairy chest, yummo. And he has <laughs> spunk. Oh my god. <laughs> Unfortunately, yummo. yummo. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I said yummo. His handwriting was hard to read. <laughs> I haven't said yummo since 2004. He definitely wrote about the hairy chest. That bit was clear. <laughs> Unfortunately for Dale, it seems that nothing came of this. In July, he writes again about David in his diary. He says, David's a spunk. I had a dream about him last night, but I don't think he even knows I exist. It's so sad to co-found a gay kingdom with someone and not hook up. It was just so funny to me. Like, this man founded a country with you. Like, I don't know if he's into you, but he knows you exist. Like, Like, we talk about useless lesbians, but I feel like this, you know. Come on, boys. Next level. (laughs) Anyway, I wonder if David was off writing in his diary exactly the same. Unfortunately, we don't have David's diary in the archives, so we'll never know. (laughs) If you're David and you're listening, like, give us a call. (laughs) We'll put you on to Dale. We can't do that. Dale, from what I've gathered, is no longer interested in talking about the kingdom. Nancy podcast did an episode on this and they tried to contact him and I think they got back an email that basically said, like, that's in the past, I don't want to talk about it. So, yeah, he's moved on with his life. It's, I guess, a little bit weird that we are talking about this thing that happened to the people involved with it are, you know, they're still alive, they're around, but they don't want to think about it anymore. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was why I was like, a lot of them, I'm not going to use their names. Yeah. But Dale's name is very publicly associated with this. Like, you can just yeah. find it by Googling the name of the country. Yeah. So, Dale, David, and their queer friends arrived on Cato Island on the 12th of June, 2004. Most of the official work of founding a country took place on the 14th of June. The rainbow flag was announced as the nation's official flag, the pink dollar as the official currency, <laughs> and the song I Am What I Am from the gay Broadway show Le Cage Faux as the national anthem. Sorry for my French. The birdcage, but French? Yeah, it's birdcage, which yeah, we bird did an episode cage. on. <laughs> yeah, we did. Français. 
<laughs> they named their capital Heaven after a famous London gay club. Dale was crowned as the emperor of the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands in a ceremony which was broadcast on Jason's ship radio. A plaque was laid to commemorate the occasion. Was there a recording made of this? No, I think they just broadcast it. I don't think they recorded it. That's a shame. They what? weren't kind of aware of recording the history they were making. Like, there's several comments in Dale's diary. He goes, oh, I wish I'd remembered to bring my camera, but I left it at home. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. And, like, there are photos of the founding of the kingdom, but it's not something they really, like stringently recorded yeah yeah so the choice of monarchy as a form of government was a sore point for many people involved with the kingdom i have been wondering about that yeah Mm -hmm. so we're gonna talk a bit about that so bill freeman was an american lawyer who became involved with the kingdom online and in a 2020 interview with the queer podcast nancy he commented that quote dale wanted to be the monarch much more than he wanted to build an entity Dale does appear to have something of a monarchist streak. He claimed descent from the gay English king Edward II, collected British coins, and kept framed photographs of Elizabeth II and Princess Diana. That said, however, Dale presents his role as emperor as one he reluctantly took on because it seemed most legally prudent. In his diary on the 12th of June, he writes, I so wish the Coral Sea Islands could have become a republic. I don't want to be a king. Still, if it helps for our cause and protects us from treason, I'll agree. This is such a, like, intense-sounding diary entry for something <laughs> which is kind of... Yeah, it's. I think throughout the whole process, it's kind of simultaneously very humorous and very flippant and quite serious. Yeah. 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 I had a bit of a chat to Nick, who's one of the people at the Australian Queer Archives, about this, and he kind of brought up this idea that, like, activism has become less camp, And so now we might think of, you know, the fact that it's so camp as undermining its seriousness. But 20 years ago, those things much more comfortably coexisted within queer activism. Oh, that's so interesting. I don't think he's wrong. We, I think, kind of touched on this a little bit, although I probably, because I am of the younger, serious, not fun generation, (laughs) so I don't really have that kind of perspective on what it used to be like 20 years ago. Yeah. We touched on this a little bit, I think, in our episode on Mardi Gras, where there were kind of Mm. ongoing discussions about, like, you know, the interplay of those two things mm. of it being an occasion for fun and a party and of it being serious activism and there was a lot of like different perspectives on that and a push and pull yeah. on that over its history so I think yeah, you know, yeah. There's something going on yeah and like there's definitely the point that like queer people openly having fun with being queer is in itself an act of protest yeah for sure so to get back to treason <laughs> cool. yeah alright sure <laughs> this idea that being a monarchy gave them more protection from accusations of treason is a reference to an old British law, the 1495 Treason Act, which states that anybody supporting a de facto or claimant king against the reigning king cannot be charged with treason. Sounds like a bit of a weird law. It was designed by Henry VII to protect the people who supported him in his claim to the crown against Richard III. Yeah, I was going to say, this law seems like it exists just to allow, like, civil wars to happen. (laughs) Yeah, that's basically it. It exists so once you're in a civil war... You're not all going to go down for treason, essentially. Yeah. (laughs) The gay and lesbian kingdom didn't come up with the idea of using this law to support their existence. It's been used by other micronations seceding from Australia, most notably the Principality of Hutt River, founded in 1970, who also chose to become a monarchy for this reason. So that explains why they chose to create a kingdom and an emperor, but why Dale? To quote the man himself, due to his descent from Edward II, he was, quote, 
the resident with the most royal blood. <laughs> so there's a lot going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, first of all, is there a reason he's an emperor and not a king? Not that I know of, no. For flavour. Yeah, I think that they probably just picked yeah. that because the title sounded better. Because it's called the kingdom, so I don't think there's yeah. any like specific logic behind that. It is like wild to me that they're like creating a whole new kingdom, and they're like, we've got to pick a king for this obscure legal reason. Which, like, all right, I'll buy it. And they're like, hmm, it's important that he's like blood related to the kings of England. Yeah. yeah. So first of all, that's a fact that I take it that he is related to Edward the Second. I mean, I haven't done Dale's genealogical research, obviously, but that's something that Dale like purports to be true. Okay. Outside of the context of. This is why I should be emperor. That's just something that Dale says about his family in a variety okay. of contexts. I mean, the reason I ask that is not so much, you know, I don't really care if it's true. It doesn't matter in the yeah. long term. But yeah. it's interesting if it's something that Dale specifically made up or not. Yeah. Given that we have this, on the one hand, quite pragmatic mm. reason for creating a monarchy. On the other hand, we have a reluctant monarch who also is extremely fond of Diana. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Okay. It just sort of, I feel, adds a bit to that conversation. Is Dale being of royal blood, allegedly, something that gives them extra protection under this law? No, there doesn't okay. seem to be any legal backing to putting someone okay. who's related to European royal families in charge. Okay. I think it's very hard for us from the perspective we're at now to actually get a feel for mm. what Dale was feeling in the moment. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like, obviously, he's written in his diary that he doesn't want to be emperor, but he's willing to do it. But other people have said that he clearly was interested in being emperor and he clearly is interested in monarchy. So it's hard to say. I mean, I think that those two things are something that can very mm. conceivably coexist within a person. Like, that's not yeah. giving me any great pause. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dale is also descended from one of the men who sailed on the bounty, which famously mutinied in the late 1700s. And incidentally, the men who were kicked off the bounty in the mutiny, including Dale's ancestor, were the first recorded people to set foot on Cato Island. And that's a fact. That seems to be a fact, yes. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So that's part of the reason that Cato Island was chosen, I think. Yeah. So Dale became the emperor, and the royal family consisted of him, his gay cousin, the crown prince Lachlan, <laughs> and the royal dog, Merrick. The constitution of the kingdom outlines the role of the emperor as a hereditary monarch with the power to declare war and peace, but also notes that that power is ultimately exercised by citizens through their representatives, so the emperor is largely a figurehead who okay. just kind of signs off on these things, and also says that there'll be no other hereditary privileges on the island. It's interesting that it's hereditary at all, quite frankly. <laughs> I yeah. did think that too, yeah. I guess the question that I have, which I imagine will continue to explore throughout this episode is how serious was this like how much did they actually expect any of this to last like is this a stunt or is this something that they're actually mm. like yes i imagine that i am founding a dynasty that will have several generations to it obviously lachlan is here who i yes. imagine is the heir presumptive i would assume so yes yeah it's just very interesting for a gay country to have a hereditary position at all yeah. yeah yeah i think and we'll definitely get into a bit more discussion of like how much is this a stunt and how much did they expect to be yeah. something more long term later on but i think even those who kind of saw it as a more long-term thing just didn't think so long-term as to go you know what will happen in 50 years when dale dies okay. it doesn't really seem like anyone was actually doing that kind of long-term plan yeah you know i'm not suggesting one of those two options of it being like largely a activist stunt or it being a serious go at creating a country that like either one of those is worse than the other i'm just trying mm. to kind of grapple with like what do we do what yeah, is this that's a good question and we will discuss it more so a couple of other items in the constitution are the separation of the various arms of government so like legislative versus executive and so on freedom of the press 
and NATO, specifically for lesbians. Only for lesbians? Only lesbians have to do national service. That's incredible. Why? (laughs) The impression that I got from reading about the founding of the country was that it was a bunch of very effeminate gay men Uh, and a couple of very butch lesbians. Oh, okay. Okay. I fully understand this joke now. (laughs) So, yeah, I think it's a joke about gender roles, essentially. Yeah, it's a joke that's like, yeah, Emily and Janet are the army, obviously. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So with Dale as emperor, other members of the group took on various roles. Dave became the prime minister. Others formed a privy council and a legislative assembly. I don't know much about the specific individuals involved beyond their names, but I can tell you, as I said, that there were two lesbians on the privy council and most of the others seem to have been cis gay men. And there are some concerns throughout the existence of the kingdom about the lack of lesbian, bi and trans representation in the kingdom's government and the fact that they are mostly cis gay men. Yeah, I mean, that's like an ongoing problem in like Australian queer activist history. Yeah, and I guess like because they're just kind of like a group of friends and not like an independently created group of people. Yeah. It's kind of like, well... Yeah, like, you don't curate your group of friends to be representative of the population. They're just your friends. (laughs) So, the group wrote a Declaration of Independence outlining the struggle of gay people to be accepted in their own countries despite their ongoing contributions, and thus declaring themselves to be, quote, free and independent from all allegiance to the Australian Crown. The declaration was signed by Dale, and a copy was sent to both John Howard and the Governor-General, who's the representative of the British monarch in Australia. Do you think uh, the Queen never knew about this? I don't know. As far as I can tell, the Governor-General never applied. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really expect that they would have, but do you think the Queen knew? <laughs> <laughs> what did John Howard think, do we know? John Howard also didn't reply, as far as I can tell. Thanks, John. But you know he just hated it. Oh, yeah. Like, we know what John Howard thought, but he didn't express it. Uh, yeah. So... Having declared their independence, they had a referendum where everyone present voted that they wanted to be independent from Australia. They sent a letter to John Howard and the Governor-General. Does this make the kingdom officially a country? Oh, God, here we go. (laughs) I mean, what's a country? Yeah, so first off, there's the caveat that we don't know what a country is. And by we, I don't mean we at this table. I mean we as a people, as an international community, don't know what a country is. Something, something, imagined communities. Yeah, so like the best way to define what a country is, is something that is recognized by other existing countries as a country. But having said that, there's kind of a network of micronations who will recognize each other, but who are broadly not recognized by the international community. Yeah, that's true. And other micronations did recognize the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands. Most notably, my favorite was the Kingdom of Fergus, founded in Kansas by Benny Lee Ferguson, and described by Benny as a tiny transgendered kingdom ruled by Benny in two roles as King Benjamin and Queen Benny. Oh, I love this so I much. I need to know more about this immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I did write down a lot of information about this, so ask away. <laughs> Is there enough information to have a different episode on the trans kingdom? Maybe an episode for our patrons. It wouldn't make a full episode. Okay. Were there other people in the kingdom, or was it just Benny in a kingdom of one? There was Benny, Benny's son, and Benny's mum. Oh, that's very sweet. So it's just Benny's family, basically. Okay. (laughs) And did they have land? They had land, which I understand was just the property the family lived on, and they also had what they called an honorary protectorate, so they didn't claim to own it over Kansas owning it, but they did sort of claim some, you know, connection or an honorary relationship to this land, which was the local beat. Ah. <laughs> ah, I see. You're <laughs> me like, what are you talking about? And I said beach, and then you're like, oh, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Look, Simba. <laughs> Our land stretches from this front door all the way to that block of public toilets. <laughs> yeah. So the Kingdom of Fergus had a foreign aid program, which meant they gave some money to the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea. Oh, thanks, Fergus. Where did they get money from? 
I don't know. I think just, you know. Just like work. Yeah. yeah. Benny was a journalist and then like a performer. I can tell. And then at this time he was doing a history degree and writing about micronations. And I think that was kind of how this came to be. That's interesting. I'd love to read history stuff he wrote. Well, his thesis is in the Queer Archives here. Oh, well, I'll be reading that. So you can go back and read it. I I think it's so interesting when, not to plug our podcast, when queer people do history about queer things. Yeah. Like, I know that Lou Sullivan, like, wrote a book about a trans historical figure before him, which I have not read, but look forward to reading one day. We can do, like, layers. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. But yeah, the gay and lesbian kingdom was pretty exclusively only, when I say pretty exclusively, I mean completely exclusively, only recognised by other micronations. Yeah. Mm. Wasn't recognized by anything that you would think off the top of your head is a country. So by that metric, no, they're not really a country. They're just some guys on an island. <laughs> How many micronations existed at the time, roughly? I think it's very hard to quantify yeah. how many micronations exist because, you know, they're very ephemeral and it depends how widely you publicize your micronation. Like, the gay and lesbian kingdom had a website, a Facebook group, some message boards, all that kind of stuff. But some micronations are just a guy with a flag saying, I own my land now, and they may yeah. not put anything out in the public. But you know that that guy in, I don't know, Ohio was recognizing all the other micronations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Australia is, interestingly, very high on micronations. Okay. I think that makes sense as a country which is extremely big just geographically. Because I know that was the driver behind Hutt River Province. I understand that it was basically like, hold on a second, you know, we're restricted by what the government is doing, Mm. but we don't get anything out of that. Yeah, yeah. And that would make sense why Australia in particular is very micronation heavy. So the kingdom did justify its existence through a few different legal frameworks and justify its state as a country. Firstly, they turn to the legal principle of unjust enrichment. That is that if something is taken unjustly, compensation must be made. And Hutt River Province uses this same argument, which is again where they got the idea. In this case, the gay and lesbian kingdom argued that their rights had been unjustly taken by the Australian government and they would be taking their compensation in the form of territory. All right. Secondly, they argued that Australia and Britain before it had never formally claimed the Coral Sea Islands and just kind of assumed they owned them by owning Australia. The rainbow flag raised on Cato Island on the 14th of June was, according to the kingdom, the first flag ever flown on Cato Island and therefore staked their claim to the territory. That sounds plausible. Yeah, as far as I know, Britain and Australia never did raise a flag on Cato Island. Yeah, I I mean, I guess like the other thing this brings up, though, is that like... Britain showing up and planting a flag, we can't just uncontroversially say, yeah, that does give you ownership over that land. Yeah, obviously not. Like, if that's your metric, okay, but that's not how things should be. I guess, like, how self-aware is that comment then? I don't think if we're talking about, you know, the ownership of the land by First Nations people, there's no reference in what I read about the gay and lesbian kingdom to First Nations people in Australia, really. I wonder what Indigenous people's relationship to the Coral Sea Islands was like. I tried to look into that, and as far as I'm aware, there wasn't really a connection to the Coral Sea Islands by any First Nations group. As we said before, the Coral Sea Islands don't have much to offer. Yeah, I mean, I guess if it's like 500 kilometers out to sea, it's not really inhabitable, and then there's not really any reason to go out there. Yeah, like, you know, I may be wrong and not know some information, but I don't know of any connection. Like, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that, like, Dale and Co. personally turfed some indigenous people off of this island. No. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I was just but curious. I think it is interesting that they're using this sort of rhetoric mm. of, like, you know, this was never claimed by Britain, we're planting a flag here, we own this now. 
Yeah. And like similarly, I'm descended from European royal families and I planted my flag. Yeah. Because it is quite easy to kind of be like, that's quite, you know, rhetorically witty. Mm. Get wrecked, Australia. But also. Yeah. There was another movement in the 1970s, to go on a bit of a tangent, in America, where the Gay Liberation Front started this movement for a whole lot of gay people to move to Alpine County, which was a very sparsely populated Californian county, with the idea that eventually because it was so sparsely populated, they could reach majority and have a gay voting block. Okay. And there was a whole lot of discussion that went on around that time about whether this was, you know, separatist and whether this was a way for queer people to break away from conventional society or whether this was actually very assimilationist to be really working within the existing political structures and saying, okay, so if we need to be in this location and vote in this way to get what we want – we're willing to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of both, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I was just about to say, I strongly reject this dichotomy entirely, and I feel like it has very similar energy to that, like, if you vote, you're, like, complicit in the system, don't vote, do real activism kind of thing, where it's like, you can be both of these things. You can want to, like, challenge society as well as working within it as much as you're able to, like... yeah. You don't need to be Mm. choosing between those things. But I don't know that that's, having just said that, I don't know that that's particularly relevant to the case of the Coral Sea Islands, in that I don't think it's really the case that they've been like, oh, we're working within the system. You know, Australia never officially claimed this, so this is ours. Like, they're making a pretty weird act in the first place. I think that some of them at least did genuinely believe that they were working within the system and this way they could stake their claims. There's a letter from Bill Freeman to Dale outlining this argument, specifically about the planting of the flag that says, you know, this is an argument I found that I think could mean you can legitimately claim these islands. To make this work, you have to make sure you never publicly reference Australia owning these islands because then you're, you know, acknowledging acknowledging that. Mm. So, like, he was actively trying to say, how can we make this work? How can we make this legally watertight? So we do have a leg to stand on here in quite a serious way. Okay. So, finally, from a legal standpoint, the people founding the Gay and Lesbian Kingdom turned to what they referred to as a provisional international law, which they quoted as saying that oppressed people of overseas territories have a right to self-government and self-determination. I'm not sure of the exact international law in question. They never specified this point, and I couldn't find anything that used that exact wording. But the way they saw it, if this international law did exist, they were an oppressed people, and they had now claimed the Coral Sea Islands and overseas territory of Australia, another reason to specifically use the islands and not another part of Australia, and therefore they now had a right to self-government. So it probably won't shock you to learn that Australian politicians didn't agree with any of this. My key question is why would Australian politicians care about this? Like, do we need these uninhabited islands? Is there something useful in the, like, marine territory? I assume you're just underestimating how much Australian politicians hate gay people. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, I think you are right to a degree in that, like, most Australian politicians, so Dale wrote, as I said, to John Howard and the Governor-General and also to many, many MPs, some specifically Labour and Greens MPs, Greens being another of our left-wing political parties, responded to say, like, yeah, we agree that what the Howard government has done is really bad and so forth. One wrote, for example, saying, look, I don't know the ins and outs of international law, but I do agree that the Howard government is in the wrong here, yeah. for example. But overall, yeah, they just didn't even respond. No one from the Liberal government wrote back in any detail to fight them. The best they got was letters just saying, no, we don't recognise that. Mm -hmm. All right. So they weren't really giving them much time. So since Prime Minister John Howard and the Governor-General Michael Jeffrey both failed to respond to the Declaration of Independence, the Gay and Lesbian Kingdom had, as they put it, quote, recourse to the force of arms to defend gay rights, and they declared war on Australia in September 2004. 
get wrecked Australia. Australia also didn't acknowledge this. So let's talk a little bit about what the gay and lesbian kingdom was for. Yeah, I guess this is <laughs> the next kind of question. Yeah, which I feel like we've kind of been talking around for a bit. Yeah. Like, what's this for? What's the point? So in my experience, the most common reaction queer people have to being told there's a gay and lesbian island kingdom is to ask, when can I move there? And the government of the kingdom received many letters to this effect from queer people all over the world, many of whom seem to have genuinely hoped to relocate to the island. One letter, for example, reads, Dear Sirs, please send me more information about immigration to the gay kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands. Do we have to bring tents to live in? What construction materials are available? Is a personal boat essential? All that sort of thing. Many thanks to you and good luck, Richard Ship, gay man. Another came from an international couple in India who wrote to say that as a bi-national couple, we have no legal claim for legal partnership or marriage in either of their home countries, and therefore they had a great interest in becoming citizens of the kingdom. I'm going to read you a few more of these that are a bit more lighthearted. Um, yes, I'm quite emotional about this. Yeah. So a couple of my other favourites are Alex from Sofia in Bulgaria, who wrote, Please tell me, did you accept new citizens from other parts of the world? I'm a bottom gay, if you need more info. <laughs> and Luke from New Zealand, who wrote, My question is how to become a citizen in the gay kingdom. My profession is butler, and of course I am gay. <laughs> But to get back to those more serious letters, of course, Cato Island wasn't really habitable long term, and so the gay and lesbian kingdom was forced to write back and explain that no, these people couldn't actually relocate there to escape homophobia in their own countries. So the failure of the kingdom to actually provide a physical country in which gay people could live and seek refuge from homophobia did cause some conflict amongst those involved in the kingdom, some of whom thought it should be able to do that. In late 2004, most of the Legislative Assembly and Privy Council resigned in a debate over Dale's power as emperor. I thought he didn't actually have any. I guess his role as emperor rather than his power. But the argument was about the declaring of war and who actually had the right to declare war. Okay. Yeah. And so once they all resigned, they were replaced in their roles by a variety of international activists who had never visited the kingdom but learnt about it online. So having never been to the island and seen this little bit of scrub in the middle of nowhere, they had different conceptions of what the gay and lesbian kingdom should be. So these international activists discovered that some of the photos used to represent the kingdom online were not actually taken in the Coral Sea, but showed the foundation of a different Pacific micronation, the new free state of Caroline. And so they began to question whether the gay and lesbian kingdom actually physically existed at all. They demanded that Dale travel back to Cato Island and send them photographs of the plaque and GPS coordinates proving its location. When Dale didn't provide satisfactory proof, the Privy Council stripped him of pretty much all his remaining powers and replaced him with an American Lord Protector, Dale remaining Emperor only in name. I'm so mad about this. (laughs) (laughs) My emotional response is this isn't on politically. I don't know what I think of any of this. Yeah, and like, as I said, I was forced to glean information about this from Wikipedia edit history, so... My knowledge of, like, the ins and outs of what happened is pretty sparse. Like, what Dale thought was happening here could be very different to what I've just recounted to you, because as far as I can tell, what I've read was written by some of these other people. On Wikipedia. On Wikipedia. Unsighted. So I can kind of see what the argument was about. So this is only, again, from Wikipedia. Yes. So how do you know this happened at all? So my best knowledge for how I know this happened at all is that, like, Prior to going back into Wikipedia's edit history from this time, I had come across hints that there were these kind of conflicts going on. So, for example, in message boards from the time, Uh from the people involved, there were kind of references to this conflict. 
So part of the argument here was just about the veracity of Dale's claims to have founded a country. But some of these international activists were also critical of the kingdom for being a political stunt and not a physical country that could actually accommodate queer people. I just don't understand why they would look at somebody founding a like micronation as a political statement and be like, I'm mad that this isn't a real country. Like, that's not what they were doing. Yeah, and I think it's partly that some of these people seem to have become involved a bit later on and internationally, so they did not have as clear an idea of what was actually going on on the ground. And you can also see from the letters that the gay and lesbian kingdom were receiving that people did really hope that this would exist. There were people writing and saying, I'd love to move there. What's this gay kingdom? I'm really struggling in my own country. Yeah, Mm, yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, and I was thinking about that. Like, if Richard was sincere when he wrote his letter, he was literally like, look, I don't care. I will live in a tent. Just let me go somewhere where I can be gay. Exactly. Like, you know, whether or not it's realistic, people wanted it to be real. Yeah. I guess, like, where are these perceptions coming from? Like, is this just people kind of wildly running away with their own conception of what a country is? Or is this related to, like, press releases or interviews or anything that people involved with the gay and lesbian kingdom had given? Like, why do they think that there is or should be a country they can move to? As far as I can tell from what what evidence I've found, Dale and those people who were involved in the founding of the kingdom didn't do much press work like they weren't really writing media releases contacting you know newspapers or tv stations or anything they were approaching it much more politically than from a media perspective so i think while there was information around internationally that information was pretty sparse and people were kind of filling in the gaps themselves Okay. I understand the desire for this to exist, but it feels quite complicated that this was allegedly at least founded because of a specifically Australian political issue. Mm. And like, I have every sympathy for people who are, you know, in like India or wherever, you know, who who were just like, I live in a homophobic place and I live in a not homophobic place. But people who are like getting rid of Dale because they're like, you've failed. We have all these international concerns that aren't being met. Why should this be meeting all these international concerns. This was like a symbolic protest against Australian homophobia. Yeah, and I think that's what kind of caused a lot of this conflict as all these international people became involved who were coming from a fundamentally different place because they weren't coming from, you know, this group of Australian activists who had done this because of this Australian policy. And so they all had really different expectations of what it should be. Yeah, so like when we have this like international group of people, where are they from? Who are these people? Most of them, I believe, are from the USA. I don't really have specifics. Like, I know there are Americans and Europeans. Mm. Yeah, at the very least, it seems to me like, even if you consider the kingdom as kind of like a lighthearted political protest act, you're coming from somewhere else, piggybacking on someone else's political protest and objecting to what they've chosen to do. Mm, Yeah, and the outcome of some of these conflicts was actually that a lot of these factions broke off and founded their own groups that were no longer like connected to the Coral Sea Islands, but were just kind of exploring ideas of queer nationalism or queer nations in other avenues. Okay. So one of them, for example, Victor Zimmerman, who's a German man, founded a website and a group called the Gay Homeland Foundation, And that completely, like, divorced itself from the Coral Sea Islands and still today kind of talks about the idea of finding a place and founding a gay country. But they've acknowledged that the Coral Sea Islands is not that place. And I mean, that seems reasonable to be like, we were inspired by this thing, but we want to make something different. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit about what the people who founded the kingdom itself said that it was for. So on the About Us section of the kingdom's website, they explained... As an independent nation, 
the GK will give gay people a voice in the United Nations. <laughs> the government of the gay and lesbian kingdom will also have a legal platform to bring rich and powerful nations such as America before the International Court of Justice to end discrimination against gay and lesbian people that live and work within its borders. In his 2020 interview with Nancy, Bill Freeman made a similar point, saying that the idea of the kingdom was to, quote, enforce human rights in a unique way for gay and lesbian people around the world. What we wanted to do was see the gay rainbow flag in the UN set of flags. American scholar Brian Walker wrote an interesting article in 1997 titled Social Movements as Nationalisms or On the Very Idea of a Queer Nation, where he explores some of these ideas. And as Walker notes, there are many resources that countries have access to that non-country minority groups don't, such Mm, as mm -hmm. the International Court of Justice, as the Gay and Lesbian Kingdom says. On an individual level, something Dale's also talked about, is that many countries' anti-discrimination laws protect people from discrimination on the basis of citizenship of other countries, but not on the basis of sexual. So by creating a citizenship based on sexuality, the kingdom creates a workaround for the lack of sexuality-based anti-discrimination laws in these countries. Okay. So to allow this kind of protection, the kingdom had a law called the Law of Return, which is modelled on Israel's Law of Return, which gives Jewish people the right to citizenship. The kingdom's law stated that every member of the unified gay tribe, wherever he or she may be, has the right to come to the gay kingdom of the Coral Sea as a refugee and become a citizen of the gay kingdom of the Coral Sea. Okay, so people thought they could come there as refugees because they'd been told they could come there as refugees. Yes, they did have that law. Well, that changes things. Again, my question is just, do they mean any of this? I mean, it still seems to me fairly clear that you can look up these islands, see what they are, be like, this is uninhabitable and understand it as a symbolic thing. I guess, first of all, like, I don't know, what's the internet like at this time? Can you just look this up? I guess if you can go to the website, you can just look yeah, it up. I don't yeah, know. I didn't yeah. have the internet in 2004 or whatever. I had the internet in 2004. It, I like, f- worked. It <laughs> <Yeah>. worked. <laughs> there was not the stuff on it that there is today, but you could definitely have found out what the Coral Sea Islands yeah. were. Obviously, yeah. Obviously, like, I agree with you that it still is just kind of dumb for you to, like, see that on a website and assume that you can fully just operate your entire life and this tiny set of islands has to take in, like, an unlimited amount of people and whatnot. But, like, yeah. Yeah. It is a different thing if they're like, yep, we accept refugees, please show up. And then people are like, when can I show up? And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, that's a little yeah. bit of a different set of circumstances. Yeah. And yeah. I think there is a little bit of just kind of like lack of direction within the group themselves about what this is. Like these ideas about we'll create a nation which is largely symbolic in order to get the rights at the UN and so forth that physical countries with land have. Yeah. You can see how you have that thought process. So, like, do they actually literally want these rights at the UN? Dale did write to the UN. The UN never wrote back. But Dale did write to the UN and the International Court and kind of lodge whatever you need to lodge to say we'd like our seat at the UN. Okay. I mean, I get a lot of the sense here that, you know, this is exactly what I'd expect to happen if a bunch of, like, my friends decided to start a gay kingdom and take it quite seriously sure yeah like i can understand that they went into this like this is you know this is a political protest this is a bit of fun and then they're learning as they go through it what it actually is yeah and this is definitely something that bill freeman talks about that like they started it he wasn't involved at the start because he's american so he was not physically in australia but he was involved from quite early on that they kind of started it as this protest and then they had to discover on the go what does it mean to be a country how do we make a country what do we actually need to do and for some people they were really interested in that part of it and they really wanted Mm. to get into it and for some people they were just kind of like 
oh, this was just a joke to stick a rainbow flag on an island and say, hey, we can get married here. And so there was kind of that tension of like, how seriously are we taking this? What are we doing here? Yeah. And like, that all makes sense. Yeah. Like, I guess that has to have been the background to it, even if you didn't know that, like we could have extrapolated that. But it does make it difficult to know in what way to talk about it when Mm. it clearly doesn't really know itself what it wants to be. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how seriously do we take it when they don't know how seriously they were taking it? Like, I don't want to be like, oh, well, this isn't a real country. This is just just like a joke they did on an island like that feels too dismissive but if Mm. we're saying like no this is a country then well like what comes along with that like i'm not saying they had to take all these refugees (laughs) yeah i mean they obviously could not they couldn't have done that but like you know that reframes how we talk about it and how we talk about things like someone calling themselves a monarch and things like that and i just kind of don't know where to land on that because neither do they (laughs) yeah yeah i mean they don't and i think you can definitely be something which is like not a country in any practical sense but they meant this quite seriously in a symbolic sense Mm, when you hear about that kind of language where they're like we're trying to give queer people the tools that an oppressed national group Mm. would have and like i think there's a point to be made that like some of these people do make about the fact that our world gives a lot of protection and a lot of rights to people based on geographic boundaries but like, you know, if you say, if you throw out the number of queer people of 5% of the world, that's bigger than almost every country. But because they're not geographically concentrated, they don't have access to those same rights. Yeah, which makes them far less powerful as a community yeah. than the community of, say, I don't know, people in the United States. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, you're exactly right. They don't know what they're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really fault them for that. Sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, how old are these people? I think they're in their, like, 30s-ish. Uh, um, yeah, like, if I started a country tomorrow, I would be like, guys, come, we're having a gay nation. Yeah. yeah. And this is exactly what would happen. And I feel like all that they can do in this situation is, like, write back kindly to people who write to them mm. and be like, look, we're sorry to, you know, crush your dreams, but this is fundamentally symbolic rather than a reality as, like, a nation you can live in. Yeah. And I think that's okay of them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, moving on to something a little more lighthearted, it would be remiss of me to talk about the kingdom without talking about its stamps, one of the things for which it is most famous. The Gay and Lesbian Kingdom papers in the Australian Queer Archives are full of letters from stamp collectors all over the world requesting to buy their stamps. It's very funny because some of these stamp collectors are clearly just really into stamps. They do not care that this kingdom's gay. Some of them barely even seem to know this kingdom is gay. They just want every stamp in the world. (laughs) I wonder why people are such, like, freaks about stamps. Yeah. Like, obviously people collect literally anything, but stamps are, like, in particular. Yeah. I think it's just been, like, a very long-running collecting hobby. Like, coin collectors are like that, too. Mm. And, like, it's kind of fun, because every different country has different ones, so you try to get, like, the small runs of ones from faraway countries. Mm. So, unfortunately, this podcast is not a visual medium, so I'm going to have to just verbally describe these stamps to you. But you can Google them and see them. <laughs> this is a podcast where we verbally describe stamps. Today's set of stamps comes from Canada. The first stamp has a beaver on it. So the first stamp... <laughs> There are nine stamps in total. Are you going to describe nine stamps? Yeah, I am. Please use your, like, most deadpan voice. <laughs> I want I to thought... feel like I'm watching, like, an auction house, you know? <laughs> I thought you wanted to know what was We do, we do, we do. I've just made that I'm up. sincere when I say please do this. <laughs> okay, so all the stamps have the background of the rainbow flag. Yeah. There's some queer symbols, like there's a pink lambda, there's the rainbow flag on the background of a rainbow flag. <laughs> Is it just like a smaller flag in the flag? The like, background's quite pastel, so it's like a bright rainbow on the background of a pastel rainbow. Okay, okay. 
They've also stats with various combinations and permutations of the gender symbols. There's a map marking the location of the kingdom in relation to Australia. There's the red ribbon, symbolising AIDS activism. There's the pink triangle, overlaid with a gold crown, which was also used as the letterhead for the kingdom. There's also the leather pride flag and two different bear pride flags. Okay. The income from these stamps was apparently the only income the kingdom received, and it supported their postal service, with mail picked up from a post box in Queensland and delivered by plane to a post box labelled the Royal Gay Mailbox, set up on Cato Island. <laughs> I'm not clear how often this service actually operated, given that no one lived on Cato Island, but... Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, who went there to pick it up? I'm not really clear. (laughs) But that's the theory. I assume you're functionally putting it in the mailbox and then being like, oh, let's check the mailbox, and opening the mailbox and taking it out and then opening your letters. Yeah. 10,000 different requests for stamps from elderly (laughs) Italian men. That will pay for the next time you want to go to the mailbox and do this. Yeah. Yeah. So the stamps did unfortunately cause some issues around finances within the people involved with the gay and lesbian kingdom. Despite having been largely replaced by the American Lord Protector, Dale continued to manage the stamp sales and money went into a private bank account in his name. Eventually, sometime in 2006, I believe, in a dispute about this financial management, Dale broke off all communication with the rest of his government. Although no longer recognised by many of those involved as emperor, Dale did continue acting as emperor all the way up to 2017, or at least, you know, making announcements in the name of of emperor while it seems that most other people either lost interest in the project or kind of took their interest in queer nationalism in a different direction okay i do want to mention that in spite of some of these disputes that i've talked about bill freeman at least remembers being a part of the kingdom as a very positive experience as he puts it it was one of the best things i think i did in my life that's nice he says we had nicknames for one another we loved one another we worked hard together we got along every one of us worked as hard and tried as hard and sweated and bled together and made what we could do together happen so after about a decade of relative silence in february 2017 the kingdom made it into australian and even some international media in february 2017 the rainbow flag was flying in the lobby of the department of finance in australia's capital canberra liberal senator erica betts (laughs) (laughs) you were waiting for him and he's here so Erica Betts is a vocal opponent of same-sex marriage. So Eric took offence to the flag flying in the lobby of the Department of Finance, and during a Senate hearing, he questioned who had decided to fly the flag, saying, Some people see it as an activist flag for a particular cause in relation to the issue of whether or not we should change the legislation on marriage, and arguing that if that was permitted, then one imagines the Marriage Alliance banner, an anti-same-sex marriage lobby group, should be flown equally. Shut up, Eric, you- That's exactly right. (laughs) Because this was said, like, in the Senate hearings, we do have recordings of this, and I was going to play it as, you know, here's what he said, and then I listened to his voice, and I was like, "Uh, I'm not doing that. It's too bad. (laughs) I hope people heckled him. They do heckle quite a lot. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they were kind of like, why you bring this up? This just isn't a big deal. All right. Seems to be the reaction. Yeah, Um, fair enough. Eric concluded his comments by adding, for what it's worth, by way of some slight humor on this issue... Always good to be humorous when you're being homophobic. You've realised this particular flag is the flag of the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands, which has declared war on Australia. It is the flag of a hostile nation. Oh, Eric. Eric would later claim in a radio interview that other staff had thanked him for raising this issue. Oh, shut up, Eric. Like one guy, maybe. Staying in 2017, in late 2017, the Australian government conducted a postal survey to determine national opinion on the issue of same-sex marriage. They sure did. Should the law be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry? 
Yep. The government, once again under the Liberal Party, now led by Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, (laughs) (laughs) promised that if the majority of Australians voted yes, they would put the issue to a vote in Parliament. To be clear, Malcolm Turnbull could have just put the issue to a vote in Parliament without going through this rigmarole first. To be clear, this is something that was extremely traumatising, just for our international listeners, for Mm. many queer people in Australia. Yeah, it was Um, really like hashed out in public, in ads, in billboards, this public fight over whether it's okay to be gay. People at train stations and on street corners and stuff in the city trying to convince you no or yes and things like that. On multiple occasions, like I was out with my girlfriend and then as soon as they left and I was alone, somebody in public would stop me and be like, so like, as a queer person, what's your opinion? What should I vote? And sometimes they were very polite, but that's still just an insane situation to be in. Essentially, yeah, a stranger stopping you on the street and being like, convince me of your basic dignity as a person. And that was just the national conversation for months. It was disgusting. Like, it was not any good. Like, I do see this still occasionally be brought up by queer people as like, you know, my mental health has not been the same since before this happened. Hmm. I just feel like it doesn't sound like the big deal that it was for a lot of people. Yeah. So I think it's just kind of worth clarifying what it was like. So on November the 15th, 2017, the results of that survey were announced and 61.6% of Australians voted in favour of same-sex marriage. So in response to this announcement, Dale made a speech. This is the speech that I had to hunt down on that screen cap on Tumblr. Thanks, Um, BuzzFeed. (laughs) (laughs) So to quote, I am overjoyed with the result. When the announcement finally came through, it was the most incredible relief and joy and feeling of love and just sadness that we had been through this. It was kind of one of those epic moments when you were having every feeling all at once, but also enormous pride in this country. So this speech was posted on the Kingdom Facebook page and accompanied by a note that the Emperor will sign a proclamation on Cato Island at 1700 hours this Friday, 17th of November 2017, as instructed by the Privy Council that will officially dissolve the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands, end its war with Australia, and dissolve the kingdom's government, return the Coral Sea Island territory back to Australia. And that was the end of the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands. On the 7th of December 2017, the Australian Parliament passed a bill changing the definition of marriage from the union of a man and a woman to the union of two people. I said at the start of this episode that we were pushing the definition of history here, and now we've hit something so recently, we actually have recorded audio of your podcast hosts announcing this themselves. Uh, yeah, yeah, we do too, don't we? <laughs> if you go back and listen to our 2017 episode on Lesbia Harford, you can hear that. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Specifically, throughout the episode, we're talking really negatively about how we don't think this is going to happen. Yeah. We think we've been lied to, and we had to publish a correction at the start saying, so it actually did happen. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember that. I remember that. that it was the kind of thing where it wasn't binding. Malcolm Turnbull was like, yeah, like, you know, we'll see what happens afterwards. And I was like, this is just a massive time waste. It's not going to happen. Like, I, before it happened, was fully ready for it to literally not happen in my lifetime. Like, that is how the mood was yeah to some degree i know people who had been like young gay men in the 70s who said that in the 70s the mood was any day now yeah so i was like it's never happening when i was reading about the howard government and the change to the marriage act in 2004 on the gay and lesbian kingdoms website they have this timeline that sort of says this isn't all the howard government has done and it lays out like year by year under the howard government every queer right that was wound back and every attempt to take away like things like the right for lesbians to access fertility Mm -hmm. services or there was a trans man who married a cis woman and the government stepped in to have that marriage annulled Mm. they didn't succeed but they tried so like queer rights were in many ways going backwards in the 90s and early 2000s for australians yeah to get back to the gay and lesbian kingdom i feel like there is a huge amount of 
optimism in believing that not only can you found a kingdom, but you might be able to get some queer representation at the UN and that kind of thing. Mm. Like the way they talk about that, you know, maybe it wasn't realistic, but there's a huge amount of optimism and belief in what they might be able Mm. to do that drove that project. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more of our content on Spotify, Podbean, and Apple Podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave us a review because that helps us to reach a wider audience. If you find us on Spotify, you can also rate us there. So we would appreciate that. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. And you can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com or write to us by post. And you can find our post box and links to all those other things on our website, which is queerasfact.com. If you want to support us financially, you can become a patron. As I said at the start of this episode, our patrons chose the topic of this episode. So that'll give you a chance to vote on some of our episode topics, read our monthly newsletter and get some bonus content as well. And today I'd like to thank a few of our patrons. Thank you to Danielle Kajewski, Rinda G, Maud H, Atlas Smith, and Blue Hansen for supporting Queer as Fact. You can also visit our Redbubble store if you want to buy some Queer as Fact merch. We'll be back on the 15th of October when Iron will be talking to us about 20th century Taiwanese lesbian writer Chiu Miao Jin. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then.